second chapter of Philippians. We're going to read verses 1 through 11, which you'll realize takes you through the humiliation and then the exaltation of the Lord Jesus Christ. Today we're going to focus on the first five verses as our text for this morning, and we'll get to the uh, next verses, verses 6 through 11 next week. But let's hear together the word of God from Philippians chapter 2, verses 1 through 11. Therefore, if there is any encouragement in Christ, if there is any consolation of love, if there is any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and compassion, make my joy complete by being of the same mind, maintaining the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose. Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind, regard one another as more important than yourselves. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant, and being made in the likeness of men. Being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. For this reason also, God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow, of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Just take one more moment for prayer. Father, we think of reading that we are fellowshipping in one spirit, and we pray that we would know the fellowship of the spirit during this time in which we consider your word and the preaching of it. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Does anyone like being ordered around? Have you ever heard anyone say, I really love it when people shout orders at me. I really love it when people tell me what to do. Remarkable to realize this about human nature and humanity, that we don't particularly like being ordered around, and yet at one point or another, I suppose all of us have shouted out orders and ordered people around. Does anyone like being ordered around? I'm struck, among other things, with Philippians 2, 1 through 11, by something that has only gradually been occurring to me throughout this week and looking at verses 1 through 5 of Philippians 2. Did any of you think, as we were reading those first five verses, boy, I wish Paul would just stop ordering me around. I wish he would stop shouting out these commands at me. I wish he would just stop telling me what to do. I don't think we have that response to these verses. And it's remarkable to me because in verses 2 through 5, there's 11 orders. 
11 commands. Make my joy complete. In verse 2. Be of the same mind. Maintain the same love. Unite in one spirit. Be intent on one purpose. Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit. With humility of mind, regard one another as more important than yourselves. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests. Look out for the interests of others. Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus. Order after order after order, command after command after command. And yet, if you're anything like me, reading these, this section of scripture... It doesn't come across like that. It doesn't have that abrasive quality that makes us on one level or another say, ah, stop ordering me around, stop shouting orders at me. And I've been wondering why that's the case. And I believe it's because of how conversant the Apostle Paul is with the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, with how aware he is of God's grace and kindness towards us that we receive by grace alone, not through works, so that no one can boast, and how that delivers a joy in response to the leading of our Good Shepherd, and it enables us to even hear orders and commands in a way that makes us joyful. And that's the spirit, I believe, in which we hear verses 2 through 5 read. And that's what we're going to focus on, among other things, is how Paul couches these orders within the gospel itself. He surrounds these commands with the gospel. Remember, last week in chapter 1, we spent time on that phrase from Paul, or that sentence, only conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel. You see, he does it there again. It's a command, it's an order, but he brings it to you in the context of the gospel. It's not just a to-do list, it's not do this, don't do this, it's not another religion, a false religion of do's and don'ts, but instead good news that includes command, instruction, leading, orders. Conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel, and we might be saying, well, how How exactly do you do that? Well, Paul cracks it wide open for us in these verses throughout Philippians 2, especially in verses 1 through 11. And he does the the same thing by couching everything within the context of the gospel. So our, our first point today really is the context, the context of the gospel, the context in which we receive these commands. And then we'll look at the specific commands themselves. So context and commands. The context is laid out in verse 1 of chapter 2. And then the commands, over 10 of them, follow in verses 2 through 5 of chapter 2. And the context begins back in chapter 1, verse 27, which we've already said. Conduct yourself in a manner worthy of the gospel, a overarching command that Paul breaks wide open in Philippians 2, the verses that we've read. But he does more than just that in providing context. 
he provides gospel context in verse 1 of chapter 2. Therefore, if there is any encouragement in Christ, if there is any consolation of love, if there is any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and compassion. And just meditate on those four, if any, remarks that the Apostle Paul makes here. Why would he say things like this? Well, he's establishing context. He's hammering out implications of the gospel. And I think the sense of it is, if you see even a hint of this, if you see any of this whatsoever, if you see one of the four of these, if any, if in attending church and being a part of the church of the Lord Jesus Christ in Philippi or in Columbus, Ohio, in the first century or in 2023, if you see there any of these four things, then take it to the next level, which is verses 2 through 5, and we'll get to that in a moment. But let's first consider these gospel context elements that Paul calls, calls our attention to. If you see any encouragement in Christ, by being a member of the church, are you encouraged to know that Jesus Christ is your Lord and Savior? Are you encouraged to look to Jesus Christ? Is the preaching and the teaching of the church such that it encourages you to look to Christ, to rejoice in union with Christ, to celebrate Christ, to worship Christ, to be encouraged by Christ? Is there any consolation of love? Does the love of God console you? Does the church you attend become the place in which you find consolation for your soul through the love of God? It's really interesting to realize that often the love of God comes in the context of the love of God the Father. Think of the benediction that will close this worship service and so many others. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God the Father, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit, or think about the assurance of pardon from earlier in this very worship service in which we read that we are heirs, that we are children of God, and if children, heirs also children of God the Father, loved as children of God the Father, heirs through Jesus Christ. Consolation of love, especially the love of God the Father, encouragement in Christ, fellowship, the fellowship of the Holy Spirit. Is church a place where you know anything of the fellowship of the Holy Spirit? Has it ever occurred to you at church, in a church setting, that though you are not related biologically to everybody in your row, though you might not belong to the same socioeconomic class or political party 
that you are not a coworker of the person next to you necessarily, that you don't even live in the same neighborhood perhaps, that nonetheless, you have fellowship with the person next to you because the same Holy Spirit at work in the person next to you is the one who is at work in you, bringing you to encouragement in Christ and consoling you with the love of God. And if you think about that love of God as the love of the Father in particular, you have a Trinitarian context, the encouragement in Christ, the consolation of love, the love of God the Father, the fellowship of the Holy Spirit, the context of the church. Do you see any of this? Do you think of any of this? Do you experience any of this? Do you consider any of this? Any affection and compassion at all as you hear the requests made in prayer for brothers and sisters that are your brothers and sisters in the Lord Jesus Christ because of the fellowship of the Holy Spirit, the consolation of love, and the encouragement of Christ? Do you have affection for them as you hear their needs? As you speak with one another, is there an affection because you are members of the household and family of God? Is there compassion that you extend towards your brothers and sisters in the Lord Jesus Christ? Paul's saying, if you see any of this, get beyond all your cynicism concerning the church and just ask, do you see any of this? And if you do, start there and then take it to the next level. Focus on that gospel context. Realize that all of these things, encouragement in Christ, consolation of love, fellowship of the Holy Spirit, affection and compassion, this is the evidence of the Holy Spirit among you. It's what God does within you and among you. It is not what you have accomplished by your own works. It is by the sheer grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, of God himself. It is Christ building his church in a way in which the gates of hell will never prevail against it. Start there. Begin there. Revel in the context, the gospel context, that prepares you for the commands that come in verses 2 through 5. Take what you see in verse 1 to the next level. And Paul is audacious. It's audacious to just give over ten commands in these four verses. And he begins with something that is so personal to him. Make my joy complete. Such a beautiful thing that Paul does there in the beginning of verse 2 as he begins the list of commands that come in the gospel context. Make my joy complete. He has already begun with this theme of joy that we've seen over and over, even in chapter 1. The theme of joy will, of course, continue through the book of Philippians. But he's saying, you know, you play a role in my joy. I have joy. Even in prison, I have joy. But you can make it complete. You can fulfill my joy. You can make it whole. I'm dependent upon you to do this for me. Make my joy complete. 
I think that's fantastic because in just a few verses, he's going to say, do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind, regard one another as more important than yourselves. And he began by saying, make my joy complete. He's saying, don't do things only for yourself. Do it for others and have me in mind. Make my joy complete. Make my joy complete by not regarding yourselves as more than others around you. Fulfill my joy. Be interested in my joy. Make my joy complete. And he opens up how to do this. Being of the same mind. If you are united in one faith, if you are enjoying the fellowship of the one Holy Spirit, if you are understanding of the encouragement that comes through the one Lord Jesus Christ, if you are participating in this union of the faith in the gospel, you should be of the same mind. I want to say two things here by way of applying it. I believe there are two motivational engines at work in every Christian. Two motivational engines that we find it hard to appreciate. One motivational engine is zeal. Zeal for the truth, fervor for the truth, commitment for the truth. And we need to appreciate that motivational engine. We are zealous for the truth. We hold to the one faith and the one Lord Jesus Christ and the one God and his word and the one gospel and the one true religion. And we ought to be zealous for that. But there's another motivational engine that we need to appreciate. And that is humility. I think a lot of times when we're trying to work together through church life, we're operating out of that motivational engine of zeal without appropriate appreciation for the motivational uh, engine of humility. Esteeming others as better than ourselves. Realizing that someone else has a valid point of view that we should consider and think about. This is what is lifted up before us in verses 1 through 11. Unity through humility, the very humility of Jesus Christ, God himself, certainly zealous for truth, the way, the truth, and the life. He was truth, and yet humble, interacting with those who didn't always understand what he was talking about. Unity through humility without it being at expense of the truth. Being of the same mind. Maintaining the same love. Understanding that we are recipients of the love of God through Jesus Christ, a a love that isn't because of what we have first done for him, but is exclusively because what he has first done for us. We celebrate that love and seek to love God with heart, strength, soul, and mind, and 
our neighbor as ourself, united, maintaining the same love. United in the same spirit. I think, again, there's a double entendre going on throughout these verses where Paul not only speaks about the Holy Spirit and his activity and being in fellowship with the Holy Spirit, but that resulting in a harmony of spirit from brother to brother. Then intent on one purpose, motivated by the same goals, appreciating Jesus Christ's great commission to go into all the world, teaching and discipling and baptizing, to be united in our intent to see churches planted and established both in these United States and abroad, to be about the gospel, whether it is one-on-one -on -one to a neighbor across the street or a coworker on the job or a visitor at church or in a broader sort of way by supporting mission endeavors and Christian entities. United in spirit, intent on one purpose. Now I want to uh, call your attention to something here in the text itself, which is unfortunate or less than as good as it could be in this translation. Um, Paul says, by being of the same mind, in verse 2, and then ends verse 2 by saying, intent on one purpose. But the, the word there used for intent is actually the, the same word that was used for mind. So instead of intent, it would be better to say, setting your mind on one purpose. Being of the same mind, setting your mind on one purpose. Because in verse 5, as we'll see in a moment, better than saying have this attitude in yourself would be have this mind in yourself, which is the way the ESV translated translates it. It's three different words in the NASB when in the original it all comes from the same word about mindedness. So let's keep that in mind. Being united in spirit, setting your mind on one purpose, and then the commands take the negative to the positive sort of structure. Do nothing from selfishness and empty conceit, but with humility of mind, Regard one another as more important than yourselves. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. There, in two verses, you have every reminder of how terrible sin really is. In two verses, you have there a manifesto that would deliver the world from all its ugliness, from all its hate, from all its bloodshed, from every murder, from warfare, from all of the bloody accounts strewn across the pages of history. If people would simply do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind regard one another as more important than themselves, not looking to their own interests, but also to the interests of others. What a world it would be. To the extent that when we hear that, we start saying, what, 
What world is Paul living in? Who does that? Who lives like that? Sounds like Pollyanna. How could this be? I think it's good to think like that. Cynical to some extent, but realistic. And you realize, not entirely inappropriate. What world is that? Not the one that sinners made, but the one that God entered to change. God looked on a world so cynical that it scoffs at doing nothing from selfishness or empty conceit or outside of personal interests. And he entered it to live an entire life of doing nothing out of selfishness, nothing out of empty conceit. In the King James, it's vain glory, empty glory. Think about that. Jesus Christ, to whom all glory, laud, and honor belongs by right. What we'll go on to see next week. The one who didn't count it robbery to be equal with God, but emptied himself. What? Of his divinity? No, of his glory. Said, I'll have no glory. I'll be born among them in a barn. I'll be poor, homeless. I'll die naked on a cross. Glory less. While they have wasted their lives pursuing vain glory, empty glory, selfishness, pursuing their own interests, looking out for number one. It is otherworldly. It took Christ from the other world to come in order to make this gospel. And I want you to appreciate what is here in these verses. Certainly the encouragement to stand in our good news gospel context and take it to the next level. But an acknowledgement of a sin reality that we are those saved from a sin nature and that we are those in whom there is still remaining indwelling sin, even though the good news and the Holy Spirit and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit and the consolation of the love of God and the encouragement of Christ, even though all of that is at work among us and within us, we still need to be told, don't operate out of selfishness, out of empty conceit, out of vain glory pursuit. Don't only look to your own interests. Be mindful of the interests of those around you. And then the master stroke, verse 5. Have this mind in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus. Verse 2 be of the same mind. Set your mind on one purpose. Verse 3, with humility of mind. Verse 5, have this mind in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, the alien who lived among us 
the only one who came and showed us how it's done. The only one who came and lived a life entirely from start to finish, from conception to death, from womb to tomb, out of interest for others, having absolutely no need to do it for any other reason than to save those who could never save themselves. That's the mind of Christ. It's otherworldly. It's so otherworldly when we think about it, we have to avoid cynicism. Pollyanna. Oh, that. Not the world we live in. Well, it wasn't until he came and began to build his church. Have that mind in yourself, which is also in Christ Jesus. Lots of commands, orders, couched in gospel context. Isn't it glorious, though, just to read that fifth verse? God looks at you as one made in his image with all of these abilities to think and feel and evaluate and reason. And by nature, we're sinful. We are children of wrath like the rest of mankind. We take all of God's gifts and we use them to rebel against the God who made us. But Paul's understanding of the good news is such that he can say, even to those who have remaining indwelling sin, members of the church like me and you, have this mind in you, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Don't wait for heaven for that. Reach for it now. Take it to the next level. Understand that this is what God is doing among you. The mind of Christ himself. Have that mind. In you. And you see what Paul has done. Verse 1. Four different ways to consider the gospel context in which we receive gospel commands and orders. Then, as a bookend on the other side of those commands that we work through, over ten of them, brings us right back the mind which was also in Christ Jesus. Before the commands, the encouragement of Christ. Verse 1. After the commands, that which was in Christ Jesus. Paul insists on putting his commands in the context of the gospel. And we can say, it's not just the gospel that lets us know that we are to have the mind of Christ, but it's a gospel, it's a good news, so comprehensive, so full, so real, so rich, so thorough, that even our behavior, our living unto good works, is part of that gospel. Having this mind in us, which is ours in Christ Jesus. Let's pray.